uh, clear expectations and instructions are important. Organisations like churches and businesses work hard to define their vision, where they want to finish, what their ideal future is. Because if you don't know what your target is, it's impossible to hit it. Clear expectations and instructions are important. Uh, a good boss, for example, will make sure an employee has an accurate job description. Uh, she'll give them clear feedback because it's frustrating for everyone if you don't know what you're supposed to do in the job. A good sports coach will set clear expectations about what he wants his team to do. Skills will be explained, demonstrated, copied, observed, corrected. Uh, one more example. A young couple preparing for marriage will practice communication techniques uh, so that they can clearly express to one another their hopes and their preferences. If they can do that, then there's less chance for confusion or guesswork or resentment. Clear expectations and instructions are important. Now, if it's important in those situations, how much more important is it to know what God expects? To know how he wants us to live and respond to him. He's the one who made you, the one who holds your life in his hands, the one who will one day call you to account. Is there a more important question than the one in Micah chapter 6, verse 8? And what does the Lord require of you? I don't think so. So I can't think of anything better that you can be doing for the next 20 minutes or so than listening to how God answers that question. Uh, chapter 6, uh, which verse 8 sits in the middle of, it begins with a command to listen because God is about to speak. It's the same way chapter 1 began. It's the same way chapter 3 began. Uh, look there in verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. God, the plaintiff, in a courtroom scene, or maybe it's an arbitration or a mediation hearing, uh, he's bringing his complaint against his people uh, and he's calling on, on the mountains to back him up. They're his witnesses to support him. Look at verse 2. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He's lodging a charge against Israel. The mountains, they've witnessed God's relationship with his people right from the dawn of time. They've seen everything. God begins his complaint in verse 3, firstly by explaining, uh, examining his part in the relationship. So look at verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt, redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. In other words, what did I do that was so terrible? I rescued and redeemed you. I provided leaders for you. Or verse 5, I rescued you from the devious plans of King Balak. And I brought you safely across the Jordan from Shittim into the promised land at Gilgal. And he finishes his history lesson at the end of verse 5. So that you may know the righteous acts or the righteousness of the Lord. Most of the time when that word's used, righteousness, it's about keeping a covenant, keeping your side of a bargain. God is righteous. He keeps 
his agreements, and history bears witness to it. The mountains who, watches, who, who have watched it all are bearing witness to how God's been righteous. So that's the terrible burden God placed on his people. He's setting the scene for what his complaint will be about how badly his people have responded to how he's acted, how undeserving he is of their faithlessness. But before he can, he, before he can move on to what the substance is of his complaint, we, we come to verse 6 and 7, and one of the hearers interrupts him. Now I'm imagining it's a man. It's one of the communication mistakes we identify in pre-marriage counselling. The wife wants to talk about her day and she complains about what's happened during the day. And the new husband begins to listen, but then quickly interrupts with a solution. He's going to fix it. What he's going to do to, to make things right. Now, the wife might, might want a solution, but normally she just wants, a, wants him to listen. And that's not what this person's doing for God. Uh, he's not listening, despite the command in verse 1. And he jumps straight in with what he thinks God wants him to do. Do you see there in verse 6? With what shall I come before the Lord? And it's the first of two wrong answers in Micah chapter 6 to our question of what God requires. So God asks the question, what did I do that was so terrible? Verse 6, the hearer replies with his own series of questions. So look there, verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Uh, there's an exasperated tone to the questions, as if he's frustrated that God's impossible to please. His first question is, how can I please God? What gift will satisfy him? And then he gives three answers, also in the form of questions. And they get progressively more and more ridiculous. Will a burnt offering work? A year-old calf? No. What about thousands of rams? Can you imagine it? One person offering thousands of rams. Or, or imagine this, 10,000 rivers of oil. Pour that out. Will that satisfy you, God? It's ridiculous to even imagine. His third question moves from the ridiculous to the wicked. If God won't be satisfied by volume, perhaps value will do it. What about offering my firstborn for my transgression? Something God had specifically forbidden. Of course God won't be satisfied with that. God may have spoken with a bit of irony in verse 3, how have I burdened you? But this is completely sarcastic. It's the wrong answer because it's deflecting blame. It's not accepting responsibility for the problem. It's thinking that the problem belongs to God. His standards are too high. He's impossible to please. He's unreasonable. We all make mistakes. Why can't God just overlook this one time? Perhaps he's also thinking God's unjust. 
Why should this generation pay for the sins of the previous generations? Why should they suffer defeat and exile because their forefathers did the wrong thing? God's being unfair. We're not to blame, it's his fault, is the attitude behind these questions. It's like that person who's called out for behaving badly, losing his temper or road rage or something like that, rather than accept fault and ask how the, the, uh, the relationship can be restored, they want to deflect blame. It's not my fault. I, my response was perfectly appropriate. He made me do it. She was asking for it. She pushed my buttons. It's not my fault. <laughs> well, maybe the attitude behind these questions is a genuine one rather than sarcastic. Maybe this person truly wants to please God and thinks he can do it with all of these amazing sacrifices. In which case it's a wrong attitude or a wrong answer because of pride and self-righteousness. It's underestimating the seriousness of sin. Or maybe it overestimates our own ability to satisfy God. It's the morally upright person who thinks he's acceptable to God because he's earned it, because he's nicer than other people, because he offers greater sacrifices or does more than that person. It's the anxious religious person who's building up a portfolio of good works to earn their entrance into heaven and yet is constantly uncertain. It's the older son in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son who thinks because he's slaved for his father for years, he deserves the lavish gifts and the party. Verses 6 and 7, it's one wrong answer to our question of how we please God. We'll see another in a few, verse, uh, a few verses. Uh, so we come to verse 8, it's our, it's our key verse for today. And it seems at this point Micah steps in and he speaks up for God. Stop asking ignorant questions. Stop trying to guess what God wants. Verse 8, he has showed you, O man, what's good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It's a pretty famous verse, uh, deservedly, uh, summarising what God has shown his people over generations. Uh, we'll come back to that verse in a moment. It, it's the right answer to the question. But what we're going to do is jump over it to verse 9. Uh, and that begins with another command to listen. Micah's reminding uh, people that God is the one with the microphone. He's the one bringing the complaint. Stop your interruptions, just listen. The Lord is calling to the city. God hasn't finished his complaint. In fact, he hasn't even started his complaint yet. He's only been describing how faithful Faithfully, he has kept his side of the contract. And so verse 10, we finally get to what the complaint is. Am I still to forget, O wicked house, your ill-gotten treasures and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit a man with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and her tongue speak deceitfully. 
Now, now, do you recognise the sins? They're the same sorts of sins back in verse, uh, chapters 2 and 3. Injustice, dishonesty, violence. Uh, this is the second wrong answer to our question, what does the Lord require of you? God requires obedience. He demands that his people reflect his own character and his values. He demands that we live out justice and truth and compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And what are his people doing? They're doing the exact opposite. They're walking in the other direction. They're living in the opposite way of justice, truth and mercy. They're living instead with injustice, dishonesty and abusing the weak. These are the younger son in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. They're independently walking away from their father, ignoring his care and his advice. Now, in Jesus' story, both sons are out of fellowship with their father. They're not doing what he requires of them. One is trying to earn his sonship. The other one is rebelling against it. So here's our second wrong answer. We've got injustice, dishonesty and selfishness. We saw it then. We see it today. We see it in ourselves. We see it in our society. We see it in our world. We see it in the corporate culture. We see it in how the first world treats the third world. We see it in how the haves treat the have-nots how we treat Indigenous people or refugees or the disabled or the unborn or unsupported expectant mothers. God sees and God cares and God will do something about it. We see what he's going to do in Israel in verses 13 to 16, what he's going to do about the sin. Have a look at verse 13. Therefore I've begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You'll eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You'll store up but save nothing. Because what you save I will give to the sword. You'll plant but not harvest. You'll press olives but not use the oil on yourselves. You'll crush grapes but not drink the wine. But punishment's not what we expect, is it? We're used to hearing destruction, exile. But instead it's frustration, desolation. They dishonestly pursue idols of comfort and riches. And so what God's going to do is hand them over to that. Prove how worthless those things are. They'll grab these idols and then find that they don't satisfy They'll work to produce plenty of food, but they'll still be hungry. They'll hoard money and possessions, but it will slip through their fingers and they'll be left empty. They'll plant and harvest and manufacture, but at the end of it all, they'll have nothing to show for it. They're seeking satisfaction from things that God designed, never designed to satisfy It's what lots of people do today, isn't it? They spend their lives pursuing riches or promotion or beauty 
or fame or pleasure or excitement and when they finally get it, it doesn't satisfy them. That's the definition of a midlife crisis, isn't it? You spend your whole life trying to get somewhere and when you get there you think, it's not what I wanted. It can't deliver what it, was, what it promised. They need a better treasure. We need a better treasure. We need a better object of worship, a better goal in life. The answer, of course, is they need Jesus. That takes us to the end of chapter 6. This is the end of God's complaint. Well, let's jump back, though. We jumped over verse 8. We didn't really look at it. Uh, We've seen two wrong answers, one on either side, uh, to the question, what does God require? Proud legalism on the one hand or willful disobedience on the other? Well, in verse 8, we can see three right answers. Two wrong answers, three right answers. So verse 8 begins, He has showed you, O man, what is good. This is no mystery. It's not a guessing competition. God has shown us through the history of his dealings with his people, through his law. He's shown us through his prophets. But for us, it's even truer, isn't it? Those of us living this side of Jesus, because in Jesus, God has shown us himself. Hebrews 1.2 says that in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, who's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus is God's clear communication of what he's like and what he expects of us. He has shown you, O man, what is good. Jesus both lives it and commands it. And as we read the Gospels, we see Jesus' answer of what God requires of us is it's the same as as Micah's, isn't it? To act justly, to love mercy to walk humbly before our God. Uh, What response does God require of us? He doesn't ask the impossible. He doesn't ask us to pour out 10,000 rivers of oil. He doesn't ask the immoral of us to sacrifice our firstborn child. He does ask us, though, something that is a lot more comprehensive and wide-ranging than simply offering a sacrifice. He wants more than our religious duty. He wants more than attending Sunday morning worship services. He wants more than chanting five Our Fathers and three Hail Marys and think that will be enough. God wants us, firstly, to act justly or to do justice more literal way of translating the Hebrew. Do justice. It's the opposite of what the Jews of the day were doing with their dishonest scales and their ill-gotten treasures. Treat people fairly. Nikki said it beautifully, didn't she, in the kids' talk? Treat people fairly. Don't play favourites based on wealth or influence. Treat the cleaner the way you treat the company CEO. Second right answer, love mercy. Don't just do mercy, love mercy. God wants more than just action, he wants attitude. Mercy translates the Hebrew word hesed, 
which is often translated loving kindness or covenant faithfulness. It's what God shows his people. And we're to love that. We are to internalise that action from God and to spread it. We're to make that quality of mercy part of the way we do things. There are two sides to it. We're to be reliable, truthful and trustworthy. And we're to sprinkle that truthfulness with mercy, gentleness and grace and compassion and faith and patience. Both the truth and the mercy go into what this word hesed means. We're to sprinkle our truth and reliability with mercy. We're to be drawn to the lowest and the weakest rather than the attractive and the useful. Mercy, hesed, is about love and truth. It's about heat and light. The third right answer, walk humbly with your God. In Hebrew it's literally, and in humility, walk towards your God. In humility, walk towards your God. Two of the answers are to do with how to treat others. One is to do with how we treat God. Walk in humility, walk towards your God. Your life's attitude is about humility. Your life's direction is Godward. Your life's attitude is humility. Your life's direction is Godward. Humility recognises that as you obey God, there's no merit about it. Everything that you are and you have comes from God's grace. Humility means that you're joyful and thankful rather than proud and deserving. As you walk towards God in humility, you want to please him, not earn anything from him. Humility is not the self-righteous pride of our questioner in verse 6 and 7. Humility is not the older son in the parable of the prodigal son. And we're not walking away from God, we're walking towards God. Walking away from God is the other son, it's the Jerusalem society of verses 9 to 12. Walking humbly towards our God. Well, what does that look like? Uh, Well, as we move into chapter 7, we can see what it means to walk humbly before God in the life of Micah. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, he despairs at what he sees around him. He's like a fruit picker looking for a harvest, but the trees are empty. There's not a righteous person to be found in the whole land. Verse 3, the ruler demands gifts, the judge accepts bribes, the powerful decide the rules. But rather than descend down to their level to, to just fit in, Look at Micah's response in verse 7. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will hear me. I love that little phrase, but as for me. I I don't care what anyone else is doing, but as for me. Walking humbly after your God begins with hope. Waiting expectantly for God to answer and act despite appearances. The rest of chapter 7 shows us what that hope looks like. 
Circumstances may be hopeless. Your enemies might be sniggering. But God knows what he's doing and so I'll trust him. That's hope. Look at verse 8. Micah speaks to the enemies. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I've sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. Until he pleads my case and establishes my right, he will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. Micah's humility means he recognises his sin. But it's godly sorrow because it drives him to God, not away from God. Godly sorrow drives us to the one who shows us mercy. Even if God brings him punishment. Do you see that? He'll bear it because he's trusting God's goodness. He will deal rightly with me. His mercy will triumph over his justice. I want to jump right to the end, uh, down to verse 18. You can see why Micah is so hopeful, why his humble walking after God won't be disappointed. It's not because Micah is worthy. It's not because he's lovely or lovable. It's because of God's character. Who wouldn't want to please and follow after a God like this? Look at verse 18. Who is a God like you? who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. You will hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. That would be a great place to stop. Micah thought it was a great place to stop, but I can't help myself. I want to finish with Jesus' words from the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 because they back up Micah's words describing the compassionate, forgiving heart of God towards repentant, humbled sinners. Luke chapter 15, verse 20. So the son got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glimpse into your heart today, a heart of mercy, a heart of justice, of compassion and love. Please help us to walk humbly after you, to act justly 
and to love mercy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.